Good morning. Merry Christmas. Um, By the way, if you feel the need this morning to get up and take a lap and get some blood moving, I'll just let you know it won't bother me. I'll keep going, but I might warm up my fingers while we're at it. If you have a Bible, would you find Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1 this morning. We are all familiar with the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, and we will get there uh, by God's grace later on this season. But before we get to Luke chapter 2, we want to see the prophet, as in the fruit of God's revelation to us uh, from Luke chapter 1, because there's much in this chapter that we need not miss. We are continuing to celebrate the season of Advent. We are preparing, anticipating uh, this time of Christmas where we celebrate the coming of Christ. And while we celebrate the coming of Christ the second time in the future, we're also considering how God's people, centuries before Jesus was born, were anticipating his first coming. God's people were awaiting the arrival of God's Savior, the Messiah. Uh, Jonathan, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, hinted at this for us from Isaiah chapter 7. You might remember that somewhat strange passage from Isaiah 7 where Jonathan connected uh, the, the dismal time in Israel's history with that profound promise of the virgin birth. And then last week, Jeremy also shared with us a different perspective on connecting the dots of God's promises through uh, Mary's side of Jesus' family tree, how God is continually working out his good promises, even with seemingly impossible odds. Today we're going to think about almost putting those two ideas together from Luke chapter 1. We're going to read about the virgin birth, the announcement of the virgin birth that certainly seems impossible. And yet, this is precisely God's announcement to Mary. Now when we get to the Gospels, and by the Gospels, we're speaking of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we are approaching the climax of history. Do you realize that? That in the Bible we have recorded the central point of all of history. And the whole world acknowledges this truth, whether they realize it or not. Our time is measured by the fact that Jesus was born. So we have years long ago marked by the the letters B.C., before Christ, and then after birth, after Christ's birth, we have the years marked with A.D., and that doesn't mean after death, that means in the year of our Lord. And so even when we speak of what day it is today, we are recognizing that Christ is the central figure in all of history, and his birth is the central point in all of history. God's people were waiting for the Lord to come, even as far back as Genesis chapter 3. They were waiting for the offspring of the woman to come and crush the head of God's first enemy, Satan. Moving along through scripture, we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God's people since then were waiting for the greater son of David to to come and rule on David's throne forever. And then through many more kings after David, for 400 years, not a single king fit the bill of David's greater son. They had a hard time ruling even for their short lifespan, much less for all of eternity. The promises continued to go through those kings, and yet no king was right. But then the promises seemed to stop. We come to the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, 
the, the beginning of 400 years of silence comes with the end of, of Malachi. And for more than 400 years, God's people didn't hear a word from the Lord. There was no prophet, seemingly no more promises from God that this Savior was going to come. Don't underestimate that one page in your Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That page represents 400 years of silence from God. And yet God's people were still holding on to some glimmer of hope that God's Savior, the Messiah, would come. They didn't know when, but they were hoping that he was coming. And then we come to the Gospels. Here we read the crux of history. God's plan was unfolding with ultimate effects. There's no more silence. There's no more waiting. For God's people, there's realization. The Messiah is here. The Savior has come. And here in Luke 1, we're going to read the official announcement. This is no t-shirt, no postcard, no birth announcement on Instagram. This is God's announcement that after millennia of promises, it's coming true. The offspring of the woman is about to be born. Israel is going to have a king. The son of David is going to ascend on the throne. More than all of that, the son of the most high God is about to walk among men. But he has to be born first. So let's read this announcement from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, if we're not careful, we can read this story with the eyes of the world rather than the eyes of faith. The world would draw us into this feeling that this is a great children's story. We'll talk of angels and babies and kings and kingdoms. It's fit for any, any good bedtime storybook. Or the world might try to convince us that this is simply a myth. It's a good way to explain why we do certain things in our religion, but it's not exactly true. Or worse yet, the world would tell us, this is so unscientific, it's not even funny. That could never possibly happen. So it's not believable. More than that, it's completely irrelevant. 
But church, beware of that attitude because this is the high point of history. And here is a supernatural event. The birth of our Lord is marked with extraordinary features all the way around because our Lord is an extraordinary person. And those who would shrug off this account would also throw out all that is supernatural in the Bible as they have done. But to do so not only loses the value of the Bible, but also compromises the character of the Lord Jesus and also destroys the truth of our salvation from sin. So this account is critical to our faith. Must we believe in the virgin birth without hesitation and without compromise? We must say yes, absolutely. So don't be afraid to believe in what is supernatural. Is it hard to believe? Yes. Is it unbelievable? No. This is not our folklore. This is the history of who we are as God's people. This is the way that things have really come about. And in this passage in Luke, if it is anything less than accurate, then we might as well cancel Christmas. Because it was not the eternal Son of God born in the flesh, but just a man. It was not our Savior, but just a sinner. But friends, as we read the Gospel of Luke, what we have from this detailed historian is a set of details for our benefit. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he said, It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now Luke was writing particularly to this man named Theophilus, but his point was to encourage the man in his faith and the, the things that he had already been taught, that he might be confident in the truths he had learned. Church, we also can be confident in the things that we have learned, confident in the details of this account. We can be confident that the announcement of this most incredible birth that ever existed is true. The angel is announcing a miracle. And it begins with a gracious greeting from the angel Gabriel. Now Gabriel is mentioned only four times in all of the Bible, and half of those are in this chapter. First with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, and then now announcing the birth of Jesus. If you have a hard time imagining an angel showing up to give you an announcement, that's a good thing. Because it's not ordinary. Angelic visits don't happen every day or even often at all. Now we can mistake that thought as we read the Bible because we hear about angels periodically. But we have to realize that our, our thinking about Bible history is several thousand years condensed into a less than 2,000 pages. So if you were to count, you don't have to. I did. Before this story in Luke chapter 1, angels visit humans 10 times in the Old Testament. Now that's a span of about 2,000 years and only 10 times angels visit people. And those appearances, when you count that they were often grouped together, either in the same book or to the same people, then angelic visits are even more scarce than we might think. And they always happen for very significant events concerning very significant people in God's plan. So don't let all those TV shows from the 90s water down your understanding of angelic visits. They do happen. 
They have happened, but not maybe as often as we think. And the contrast here in Luke chapter 1 is striking. Gabriel, the angel sent from God, comes to Nazareth. Now you know Nazareth, right? The city that's known for, well, nothing (laughs) until Jesus lived there. Nazareth was not a respected place. It wasn't infamous. It just wasn't familiar for anything. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of the Roman census, but he lived in Nazareth because that's where his parents were from. And when Nathaniel heard that Jesus came from Nazareth, he asked that question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In fact, the whole region of Galilee was hardly any more prominent. They asked when they heard that Jesus was from Galilee, the Jews asked, apparently with disdain, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And again, they said, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, which actually wasn't exactly true. Jonah was from a city in Galilee, but they were willing to throw Jonah under the bus to make it out to be that Jesus was no person very important because Galilee was not seemingly very important. But Nazareth is precisely the place that God sent this messenger, this angel, so that he might speak to a particular young woman who lived in that humble place. And I say woman very loosely because Mary is really a humble girl. The Bible describes her as a virgin betrothed. And as long as she follows the customs of the time, she was probably only 12, maybe 13, possibly 14. Just a very young girl of no account, really, except now the angel is speaking to her. She was pledged to be married, but was not married yet. She's very young. And almost every time I read this portion of scripture, I I think in my head, I wonder how the angel appeared to Mary. (laughs) Did he just show up in the kitchen? Did he come and knock on the door? Was she outside and he approached her just walking up the way? Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell me those details, so I know that that question is really not that important. But his greeting to Mary is extraordinary nonetheless. Think of this. God's choice ambassador, Gabriel, carrying the announcement of God's Savior from the throne of God himself, comes to a humble girl in a lowly town that nobody cares about. She's just barely a teenager, and she hears these words, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I can understand why the Bible says she was greatly troubled. Who wouldn't be to hear those words knowing who you are and where you're from? So Mary, the Bible says, she tried to discern what the angel meant. And the feelings inside her, as the Bible describes this great trouble, is conveying to us a sense of somewhat upset and somewhat confused. She's talking to herself, trying to to figure out, discern, what, what exactly is the angel Gabriel telling her? What is he going to say next? Maybe she was aware of what I just told you about the angels from the Old Testament, that they don't really show up very often, and so this must be a very important thing. Maybe she knew the story of Gideon. Have you heard of Gideon? He thought he wasn't very helpful to the Lord's plan, but the angel showed up to him and told him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Sounds a lot like what Gabriel told Mary. 
But no matter what, Mary understands the weightiness, the heaviness of this situation. She's probably bothered, probably confused, maybe a little upset, maybe overwhelmed. Mary was a very special person, but she is a person nonetheless. And her emotions are very real inside of her. Later on in verse 48, Mary would confess that God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And she said, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. So she understands the separation between herself and this message that God is bringing to her through the angel. At some point, she recognizes what the angel is saying, that that Mary is a receiver of grace. She's not a dispenser of grace as the Roman Catholic Church would teach us from this passage that she has gained so much grace that she can pass it out to others. That teaching has led to the the wrong idea that Mary herself was born sinless and lived a sinless life and was so sinless that she didn't even have to wait for the resurrection, that God just brought her body to heaven. But that's not what the scripture is teaching us here. We don't need to venerate Mary as some do because Mary is more like us than Mary is like Christ. Mary is certainly favored one, like the angel says, but that's not to say anything more than the fact that she was a regular, humble human who received grace from God. And any measure of grace that a person receives from God is so much more than anything he deserves, or in Mary's case, she deserves. And the grace that Mary was about to receive was going to be wrapped up in a concentrated fashion in the Son of God who was going to grow in her womb. But Mary's grace is not wrapped up in her special position as Mary, but as in her special uh, task of carrying the Son of God. This word, favored, is actually the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. We've been there in the last couple of months. Where Paul speaks about how God's glorious grace, in his glorious grace, he has blessed or favored all believers in Christ. So brothers and sisters, if if you are a Christian, then you have received the favor, the grace of God, like Mary has received grace from God. Mary's grace that she received was wrapped up in the the child Christ who who would come and live inside of her. We have received the grace of God by being placed in Christ in a spiritual sense. God was blessing Mary, certainly, but the blessing was wrapped up in Christ. This is an extraordinary greeting, but it's just another display of God's lavish grace. That he honors those who have no qualifications. He shows favor to the humble and to the undeserving And if you are in Christ, then you receive the same kind of grace that Mary received. Because the favor is not wrapped up in Mary, the favor is wrapped up in Christ. And he is the second extraordinary detail in this announcement. Not only a gracious greeting, but the divine son. And anytime we read the word behold in scripture, we need to stop and listen. Because something important is going to follow. And the angel said, behold, in verse 31... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
If you were with us two weeks ago, and then you, you heard a verse from Isaiah 7, 14 that sounds very much like this verse. I don't think that's an accident. Isaiah promised the faithless king that even though he wouldn't trust God, God would give him a sign. And that sign was the virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. And there's a couple of words that are different there. But in Luke chapter 1, the virgin is clearly Mary. And they called this child, this, this baby, something different. Isaiah says Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the angel here in Luke 1 says he will call his name Jesus. But there's not a discrepancy here. When we hear different names for the Lord, it's not as if he's different or the word has confused things. It's, it's that we are getting a better understanding of who God is, a better understanding of who Christ is. Just like you use nicknames for your friends or your family that may point out some detail about them. Far greater than a nickname, we have many true, authentic names for the Lord from Scripture. And they give us a better understanding of who he is. So the angel says in verse 32, he will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. Not just any son, but the son of of God, the God who is in total control. He has exhaustive sovereignty. He is completely superior over all powers and over all of creation. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his son is just like him. I would encourage you, if you have time, if you find time, read the book of Daniel. For in Daniel, we see just how superior the most high God is. You're probably familiar with some of the stories in the book of Daniel. Daniel spoke to kings, kings who thought they were something when really in the grand scheme of things, they were very small. You may have heard of the king Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful king whose pride got the best of him. He's the king that set up that golden statue and told everybody to bow down to it as if it was something special. Well, after there were those who didn't bow down and who escaped the fiery furnace because God protected them. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you need to turn from your sins or God is going to humble you. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar was walking around on his rooftop and he said, look at this kingdom. Look at this grand kingdom. I built by my mighty power and for my own glory. You know what God did to Nebuchadnezzar? Made him like a beast to eat the grass like an ox. And his hair grew out as long as eagle's feathers and his nails grew like bird's claws until he learned the lesson of, and I quote, the most high rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whom he will. When Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, followed in his dad's proud footsteps, Daniel warned him also, you know the lesson that God taught your father about his pride And yet you have not humbled your heart either. You've lifted up yourself against the God of heaven, Daniel said to Belshazzar. And that night, Belshazzar was killed. Do we think that the president of the United States got his position by his own ambition? Do we think he was defeated in this latest election because someone else was able to appeal to the American people better? Both of those things may be true, but ultimately, friends, the most high rules, and he 
is moving the kingdoms of men around almost like chess pieces. And yet there is a greater kingdom on the rise, a kingdom that far surpasses the kingdoms of men. And the Most High has placed his son on that throne. It is the throne of David. David was the prime king of Israel. And his reign in Israel's history represents the golden age of Israel. And ever since then, God's people have been waiting for the son of David to take that throne back and claim rightful rule because God promised it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wanted to build a temple for God's presence, a a dwelling place, a, a house for God, if you will. But that house, because David is human, that house could only be temporary. It'd be a place that eventually, even even after maybe several hundred years, it would still fall because it was only a temporary building. But God told David, on the contrary, you want to build a house for me, but instead I will build a house for you. I will build your family. I will build your line. And I will place a son of yours on that throne to reign on that throne forever. And that will be my dwelling place forever. The church recognized what we're finding out in Luke chapter 1. This son of God, this son of Mary is, is going to be born and he will be the greater David to sit on David's throne and in that position where Christ sits in Christ, God dwells forever. The promise is being answered. That son that we're speaking of from Luke chapter 1 is the Lord Jesus Christ, the rightful heir of David's throne He is heir through both Mary and Joseph. And by way of this virgin birth, it is God in the flesh who sits on that throne. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily so that Christ is both God and man, so that Christ is both son of David and son of God. It is only Jesus who can fulfill this promise. And he does so because of the virgin birth. And he does so forever. That's the emphasis of verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Even the best of Israel's kings only lasted a few decades, but the kingdom of God's beloved son will never fall, will never fail, never falter. He is indeed a very unique son. Now Galatians 3.26 says, Many are the sons of God through faith. But that is only because through faith, those sons are in Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God. And so if you trust in Christ by faith, then you too are a son of God because of your union with Christ. And the difference between us and Christ are as big as the difference between a biological son and an adopted son. Brothers and sisters, this child was like none other. He He bears the name of God. He sits on the throne of God. He holds the scepter of God's authority. And his realm is the everlasting kingdom of God. God was giving Mary a kingly son, a divine son, his very own son. But he also gave Mary an extraordinary faith. And that's the third detail I want to show you in this announcement. How Mary responded to this news that she heard from the angel. She responded with an extraordinary faith. 
even faith is a gift from God? It may seem that Mary doubted what the angel said because her first response was a question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And that's a logical question. We are familiar with things coming about in natural processes, but when, when those things don't happen, then the question follows, how can this be? How would it be that Mary would conceive and have a baby? But her question is not like Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 18. Zechariah heard that he and his elderly wife would have a son, and he understood the message, but he lacked faith. So his question to the angel was as if to say, I understand what you're saying, but I don't really believe it. Can you show me a sign so that I will believe what you're saying? But there's sometimes a fine line between lacking understanding and lacking belief. And Mary's question is actually the opposite of Zechariah's question. It's as if she said, I believe, I just don't understand. How can a child be conceived by someone who, who's never known a man? Now, if you're only human, that question makes sense. But Gabriel had the word of God. He had an explanation of the miraculous so we read in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That explains everything, right? <laughs> Maybe it's kind of like when your children ask you questions about words that they have heard for the first time and you, you want to tell them the truth, but maybe not every single detail about it. Maybe that's the idea that the angel is sharing with Mary. He's giving her the truth, but she doesn't need to know all the details. We do have hints here of things that happened in the Old Testament. You remember the cloud would overshadow the tabernacle when God's glory was dwelling inside? Or maybe you could think of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at creation when, when he is working in creation, bringing about God's creative work. Whatever it is, there's nothing strangely inappropriate or weird going on here, but it is completely supernatural. And this is where Mary's faith comes in. It is the work of God in her that will bring about the perfectly holy Son of God. And she's ready to trust what God has revealed to her. She receives the angel's words and she doesn't grumble or complain or doubt. And so I think, as I read verse 36, I, th I think that God gives Mary a sign. She didn't ask for one, but God is giving it to her anyway. So that even Elizabeth... Your relative in her old age, she, she would seem to be beyond the ability of having a child. She's going to have one. And in the same way, Mary, you who are seemingly outside the ability to have a child, you're going to have a baby also. And then verse 37, if this is a favorite verse of yours, it's rightfully so. I see this as the key to the whole text. For nothing will be impossible with God not pregnancy to a virgin, not the birth of God in the flesh, not the most incredible miracle in all of history, not that God in man could take on the sins of the whole world all upon himself, not that God in man could give sinners his own righteousness and make us right with God, not that God in man would die but yet rise from the dead never to taste death again. Not that God in man, this God-man, Jesus, would 
work out the life-restoring resurrection of all of God's people to dwell with him for eternity. Nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary submits to the angel's message. Behold, there's that word again. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Oh, that all of God's people would say that word, that, that phrase. Let it be to me according to your word. And then, that last sentence, very important. The angel departed from her. Don't leave that off. The angel comes, maybe the best announcement in all of history. He tells Mary that she's going to carry the Christ child. Mary receives her word, so he departs. His job is done. Now, Mary may have had in mind some of the social costs that were sure to come with her unwed pregnancy. She surely would face criticism, being a mother and yet not married. But I don't believe that Luke is necessarily highlighting that aspect of the situation so much as he is telling us her reception of faith in the word of God, that God's promise is trustworthy and true. I'm sure that Mary knew, was familiar with the Old Testament. And as she has heard all of these words from the angel that, that are so filled with allusions and references to the promises of God that have already been completed in the Old Testament, she's thinking, this is certainly going to happen as well. So Mary believed and trusted. Was it because she believed the science behind it? No. Was it because she believed the sign that the angel told her about? No. It's because she believed and trusted the word of God. That is extraordinary faith. Believing the impossible simply because God says it. But brothers and sisters, that's not really extraordinary faith. That's just faith. That's the faith of every believer. To trust what God says because he says it. To trust that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. To trust that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To trust that Jesus went to prepare a place for you and will return again to receive you to himself so that you might be where he is simply because he said it. See, faith comes before logic. It's not divorced or separated from logic, but, but it comes first. Faith doesn't demand that, that reason and logic prove it. Faith only demands God speaking. Or I could say that faith works on a different set of logic, that we value the wisdom and the authority of the Lord above everything else. So that whatever God says is right. Whatever God says is true. Sooner or later, he's going to prove it all to us one way or another. But we need not be impatient. We can simply believe. That's what Mary did. That kind of conviction may sound unreasonable or unscientific or maybe even foolish as a manner of life. We will certainly face ridicule in the world around us to believe something simply because God says it's true. But if that's the world's conclusion, then I say, so be it. 
We who are settled in faith are far more stable than the fickle world who gets swept away with the latest philosophy or the latest change in science. Don't get me wrong, I love science, and when I understand philosophy, I like it. So if you wanna talk to me about a flat earth or sea slugs or the distance to the furthest planet, whichever one that is, I'll be glad to talk to you about those things. But we have to start with trusting in the revelation of God. And Mary was convinced that the Lord spoke the truth through the angel, and so she said, let it be to me according to your word. I don't think that Mary was necessarily a philosopher. Later we'll read that she was a great songwriter, but she was rich in faith. And her reception of the angel's announcement demonstrates some of God's greatest gifts the gift of grace, the gift of his son, the gift of faith. At Christmas, we are reminded that God reaches down from his exalted position. He he pours out his lavish grace upon humble people. We are reminded that God has sent his, his son as king in perfect holiness, able to die for sin, to conquer God's enemies, and to rule over his people forever. We're reminded that God is trustworthy to accomplish all of his holy will, even that which seems impossible. So I would ask you, what, what part of this passage strikes you? Is it the interaction between the most high God and humble human humanity? If so, thank God for his grace. Is it the majestic nature of God's son? then bow before the rightful king of heaven and earth. Or maybe what strikes you is the impossibility of the virgin birth. If so, pray to the Lord for faith. And may you remember this Christmas, that he who is mighty has done great things, even for you, for all of his people. Well, after the service, if you are interested to talk any, more about any of these things, or if I can pray with you about anything, I'll be off to the side. Please come. Let's pray together. Father, I can think of no better topic to consider this day than the promise of the arrival of your son. Lord, we thank you for your great grace that you show to all of your people, but especially to Mary in this passage in Luke chapter 1. Lord, we praise you for your, your mercy, for your grace. We praise you that you are a trustworthy God who keeps all of your promises and especially this one that brought to, to us God in the flesh who might take on all of our sin and pay for it completely, rise from the dead and bring about new life in our own hearts. Father, would you help us to believe these things? Help us not just to believe, but to be completely convinced and eager that this is truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your kindness to us. Amen. Stand together.